I've noticed that we are really bad at saying what number episode we're on because we don't know <laughs> the reality, <laughs> like in terms of episode of our podcast. We open the episode every time by saying, hi, this is the next episode <laughs> of our podcast. I mean, is it wrong? <laughs> <laughs> welcome to an episode. <laughs> So welcome to an episode of our podcast, The Leftover Thinkers. We are talking today about season one, episode five, which is called Gladys. Gladys, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's already a suggestion for an MVP, but I still, I'm still on the fence about mine. This episode doesn't follow... It's not a character-based episode in the same way that Matt's is, right? It doesn't follow Gladys's day in a life. So I, I found it quite interesting that they chose this episode to, to be called after a certain person. Yeah, and it's, I suppose it's about, I guess, what Gladys represents mm -hmm. in this moment of the, the, the relationship between Mapleton and the Guilty Remnants. That opening few scenes before the credit mm. I thought were were very very good yeah we we start with the scene of Gladys and Patty sat staring at each other very meaning meaningfully in in Patty's office in the GR there's a tense moment between the two of them and then Gladys nods I I want to pause on this scene a bit because I thought it was very interesting and kind of provides the key for the reading of what happens and if you miss it you've missed yeah. it and I also love that it's it starts in complete silence mm -hmm. um and I even had to check the audio on my computer I was like isn't there supposed to be some <laughs> audio to this but no it's just complete silence we see we see Gladys first and then the camera kind of pans out to reveal Patty and they're looking at each other and I think the way that I see is is Patty is is Patty is inquisitive. Her face is asking a question. Mm -hmm. And Gladys is has tears in her eyes a little bit in a very mm -hmm. subtle way. And she nods and she looks yeah. determined. And I just really like all the scenes where the guilty remnants are communicating with their faces. But I, yeah, but I thought absolutely. this one was particularly good. I think the show, you know, as much as we rave about the music, I think the show is probably some of the show's best moments are the moments of, of no vocalising and no speaking and, and no music. And I think it's those moments in which they have to communicate everything that's happening with just their facial expressions. Uh, I think back to the, the Matt episode when um, he, he wins the money and it's just that really tight shot of his face as he, the music cuts out and he smiles, right? This episode, we before we started recording, we were discussing how, you know, it's not the most exciting of episodes. And when we watched the show for the first time, this was not an episode where we were thinking, oh, I must see the next one right away. Uh, but it does have such good bits of great, great acting that yeah. I've forgotten. And like, that's yeah, why I, I think it's going to be hard to choose an MVP because... People do their part very well. There's a lot of parts to the machine of this episode and everyone, I think, really excels at their own thing. I equally had trouble uh, picking out an MVP and 
I'm also uncharacteristically keeping myself <laughs> open. I'm not <laughs> yet. We'll see. I feel like I can guess who yours is. We, maybe we can incorporate a new segment. Guess the other person's <laughs> MVP before revealing yours. <laughs> we have to write it down on a sealed envelope and open it at the end. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting that you said that uh, it's not like, you know, the episode is called Gladys, but it's not like it's a day in the life of Gladys. Mm -hmm. But the actual, it kind of starts as if it's going to be that. We see essentially her daily routine. She's painting some stuff white. She is smoking mm -hmm. and standing outside people's doors. She's being Classic. told to fuck off. The usual guilty revenants kind of daily routine. An old man falls and drops his groceries and reaches up to them appealing and, and she just walks over him. Like, And then mm -hmm. we get to the end of the day where um, her and her partner for the day are at a petrol station and yeah, I think her partner goes inside to buy cigarettes or something like that. And uh, so Gladys gets gets kidnapped she gets like a we see a hand over her mouth and mm -hmm. she gets dragged into the woods there's a nice shot here as she gets dragged after she gets dragged away of her cigarettes and her notepad on the floor which i thought was quite interesting symbolism of, of you know her identity as a member of the gr and that's been left behind and she's been dragged into the woods so yeah there's a very horrible scene here she gets she gets dragged into the woods, she gets tied to a tree with some duct tape. And then I'm trying to remember exactly how this works, but essentially we, we never see the people who have taken her. The camera is yeah, only we, focused on her. Yeah, um, there's, there's one clip of where we can see four figures. So I went, I went back and rewatched it because I, have, I had some questions and I had some thoughts and I was trying to see if I could get any hints about whether my thoughts and questions were correct or completely flawed. But, so, but yeah, we can kind of see some figures in the dark and there's only like very short clips of it, but there's about four people there that we can see, I think. And then you're right, it, it's the camera shots are almost completely of Gladys. And thinking about sound as well, what I found particularly interesting about this scene is the way that Gladys's silence is broken Mm -hmm. So she starts by obviously being silent. She's been silent the whole time. Uh, but then we see a rock hitting the tree just very near her face. And she makes a little startled sound. And yeah. then we see the rocks start hitting her face very gruesomely. Gruesomely? Very violent. Yeah. yeah. And... You know, she keeps making sounds of pain and then towards the end she's saying, please stop. Which is interesting if we consider the reading, which I guess we should talk about now, of whether the GR have arranged this and she knew that right. this was going to happen. I felt like there was quite a bit of misdirection about who the perpetrator of, of this act was. So we have a scene a little bit later on where Kevin jumps awake and, and he looks like a little bit startled and he's like classic Kevin waking up and, you know, we've seen uh, the guy with the dogs in the woods. Kevin's had all these dreams about the woods and I didn't think this the first time around, but 
this time around and he's and he's lost his, his shirts and he's just like he doesn't really know what's happened the night before so I was wondering whether they were trying to do a bit of misdirection there of like mm-hmm. oh well we know that Kevin is doing these weird outings at night could he be part of it and yeah I don't know I wondered whether that might have been yeah. they were trying to drop in a a, a little bit of uncertainty there whether maybe this is something that's been going on in his in his dreams I like that especially because I hadn't thought of it but especially because and we're gonna talk about it in the next few scenes but I feel like the guilty remnants and dogs have never been more equated than in this episode mm-hmm. yeah um, like they're literally yeah, juxtaposed in a very obvious way so yeah it could be that one could imagine a natural progression from Kevin shooting the dogs to Kevin doing violence to the guilty remnants. Next scene, uh, there is a pan banging. We are in the guilty remnant and we see Laurie asleep in a group of other people and she wakes up, uh, the pan banging noise wakes her up. Patty is there, she comes in, she's hitting the pan, she gestures people to get up. Mm. So it's still night time. She's gathering everybody in the GR to get into vans. What I, what I like about this scene is that there's also a little bit of a play with sound because we hear the banging mm-hmm. on the pan before yep. we see anything. So, yeah, it's an interesting contrast with the previous scene that was silence and, and the, the, the opening scenes before the credits are all about silence being broken and things like that. So Patty goes to, you know, Meg's trying to get in, right? She's trying to get in on the uh, the little nighttime trip. Uh, and, and so Patty goes to stop Meg. And then Meg says, whatever has happened, I want to help. So they all get in the vans and they drive uh, to the petrol station where Gladys was taken from. So I'm going to, I'm first going to do my thoughts of when, I think when I originally like watched the show, I assumed that it was someone else who did it. And so I'm going to do my thoughts now, thinking that I still think that someone else did it. So if someone else did it, I thought it was so strange that firstly, Patty found out about it so quickly and that Patty decided to get everyone out of bed and rush to the forest so quickly, right? For for a group that's all about, you know, losing, like shedding connections and everyone on their own and losing ego and everything. I found it really curious why Patty would care so much why she would immediately assume that it was something that required all of the guilty remnant to go and and see them it seems like not much as time has passed because uh, the partner of Gladys is still at the petrol station but yeah I also did think that they looked remarkably organized and this is Mm -hmm. again a thing you know as much as the GR are meant to be passive dead like it is mentioned in this episode they don't care they are completely you know they've let go of everything they are so organized that they have a bunch of torches and they're able to mobilize a really massive number of people and they all have torches and they go into the woods and there's this scene where you see all the lights and there are so many of them so yeah I think I thought you know for one, how are they responding so quickly if mm. they weren't involved? And for two, why are they responding so quickly? Like, why, why does it matter so much to them that one of theirs has left? Because, again, as it is said in this episode, they don't care if they die. The whole point yeah. is that they, 
provoke and they don't care what happens to them so uh, yeah it is it maybe it it jars a little bit with what we know about the gr the fact that they would care so much about one individual mm -hmm. that has disappeared so they pull up to the petrol station gladys's partner is writing on a pad and she writes i was in the bathroom she's gone uh, patty looks worried and she looks into the woods and they go into the woods and then the dog man dean uh, is chasing a dog with a gun i don't know a little bit of a callback maybe to the the dream in the pilot that kevin has when he sees yeah right dean hunting the stag with a gun in, a, in the woods and and laurie's there yeah i thought i thought exactly the same i thought this is just like that dream that kevin had the guy is in the mm -hmm. woods he's shooting dogs laurie is there he basically shoot he, he basically crosses paths with laurie and he shoots the dogs in front of her i yeah. thought it was very weird the way he mingles with this massive group of grs and he's just doing his own thing and that's the first time where i thought okay the juxtaposition of the gr with the dogs is like they're literally crossing each other's path there in the woods which is this place where kevin had that dream so yeah i thought I, I the interaction here or his inclusion here i just i've not quite figured it out yet but i found it almost like one of the most interesting parts of the episode i, just, I i'm not quite sure why he was there yeah. i don't know whether maybe he was there to try and as i was saying before maybe to hint that maybe he was involved with any of this the night before or if it's something to do about the dreams that kevin's having like if you were to tell me the storyline of what happened in this episode i would never guess that he would be involved in it in such a way i've already seen that dean is real while i was looking up the episode summary because i needed to find the fucking name of that um agent that i couldn't catch most of the reviews said that this is the episode where it's it is suddenly revealed that dean is real as if they had forgotten or not quite clocked the scene where jill interacts with him so he is truly inserted into the life of Mapleton here in a way that I guess he wasn't before. Definitely. I guess you could say it a stretch that maybe, maybe the scene with Jill. No, no. Jill is pretending. <laughs> Jill is being nice <laughs> and pretending that, his, that her dad's imaginary friend is real. Hello. <laughs> so after we've seen Dean shoot the dogs, the guilty remnants continue to walk through the woods. And then Laurie is the one who finds Gladys. And she looks pretty devastated, I would say. Yes. So after that, we jump to one of the many scenes where Kevin is half naked. Uh, and it's like, oh, he can't find his shirts in this episode. So I guess he has to be oh. half naked all the time. What a shame. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Oh, no, there's a logical reason for his nudity. He's, yeah, he can't find his shirts, so what else is he going to do? It's just exposition, really. So he's, he's up, he, he opens his wardrobe, and there are no shirts in there, and then he just takes one out of the laundry basket. As Kevin j jumps away, he hears a, a news report, and we hear that the Heaven's Converts compound in Florida have recently opened fire on Aftec agents. 
and that tensions between the cult and the agency have been escalating for days, starting when uh, Aztec and then Kevin just picks up the remote and just turns it off. So, I mean, it's kind of setting the scene a little bit for something that will come up later on, I think. But it's also just a nice scene setting thing of, you know, Kevin's hearing about this cult where the this agency is having a gunfight with them. And it's just, you know, it's old news. It's like, oh, another one, turn it off. Can't be bothered hearing about this. Yeah, and I think what we have been talking about in terms of how it feels like this new post-departure world is characterized by cults. Yep. If we had been having some doubts about that, this episode really rams it in that it's, you know, we may have seen just a few of them, but cults are definitely a new thing in this world. Yeah. And so I don't know if we've heard about, um, I think it's Aztec, right? So Aztec actually, they are the agency. So the, the agents that we saw in episode two that organized the raid at Wayne's yep. ranch, they were Aztec agents. It. It's a play on on the actual uh, ATF Bureau, right? Uh, the one in America, which is the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. And explosives. In this post-departure world, they've added the C, which stands for cult. Yeah, and it's actually a, it's a federal agency that deals with cults at the mm-hmm. national level. So, yes, Kevin goes to, uh, to check on Jill. He says, do you want to ride to school? She goes, no. He goes, have you seen my shirts? She goes, no. And then Amy also comes out of her bedroom and asks if she wants any, co- any coffee. Did you think that she was wearing quite a skimpy garment here? No, I thought she was just wearing normal pyjamas that people wear in summer, but I thought Kevin was being like a complete perv. So, yeah, there's something (laughs) weird here where, again, because I happen to read these reviews, people describe this scene as Amy wearing skimpy garments, and also people have had suspicions that Amy and Kevin have actually slept together. Really? Like they have, it's just not been shown to us, which I find very creepy. Maybe we'll come to like a a fair reason about about why this thing is in in the show, but no, I just, I felt like she was just wearing like, what do do people expect girls to wear (laughs) for pajamas in the summer, right? Like it's hot, like, well, okay, it's not summer there. What was it, like, March? It might be hot. She's coming out. She's just woken up. She's like, do you want any coffee? And he's there, like, ooh, must look away from the exposed ankle. Like, it's just, I I hate that. (laughs) Moving on, here is more evidence of the point that you have been making from the beginning. And now I am fully ready to continue. (laughs) There's a new alarm in Kevin's house, and he can't seem to work it. He goes to Jill, like, oh, have you... Have you set it? Have you disabled it? It's not quite sure how this alarm is going to work. Yeah, so technology failing him yet again. But then I also thought like another, so he says, did you turn the alarm off last night? And then Jill says, oh no, it wasn't on. And he's like, well, yeah, it was. I set it. Could it also have been like a little bit of a a red herring that maybe Kevin went out last night and did something, right? And maybe he came back and he didn't remember. And then he turned the alarm off, didn't remember, didn't set it didn't remember not setting it 
Yeah, you're not wrong. And it's either that or, yeah, there's, there is something going on with the coming and going in the house that Kevin is, is not controlling in some way. Yeah. The, the boundary of the Garvey's house is a, is a or, or the Garvey family is a much traversed one. So the next scene for the second time, because we realized that we haven't been recording for about half an hour. So we're going to reenact the conversation that we've just had. After Kevin has secured the borders of his own home, um, Patty turns up at his door. She looks quite serious. Kevin is quite serious. And she holds up this sign that we discussed for a bit whether it was our version that cut part of the sign outside of the frame. But then we concluded that it is actually meant to be cut out of the scene. And the sign says, uh, one of our. And from that, we can assume that it says one of our own was killed, one of our members was attacked, something like that. But the idea that it is cut out is quite interesting in terms of the interplay of silence and speech that has been happening. And also just the idea of multiple interpretations, different interpretations of things, reading and misreading signs and maybe only reading some part of signs that are being given to you and assigning meaning where there might not be any. There's a lot of things that can come out of this here. Yeah, the interpretation of meaning not being secure because you don't have enough signs to decipher. Kevin says, where is she? Which, considering how the sign is phrased, one of our, it is difficult to imagine that the sign would include the gender of the person that was killed or was attacked. Yeah, definitely. Like, you're not expecting it to say one of our women members of the Guilty Remnant were taken and brutally murdered like it would be a bit wordy one of our ladies was taken (laughs) one of the gals (laughs) so so i then speculated that this might be about laurie and he's asking about laurie and then there is a scene later on where jill has the same misunderstanding definitely and then the next scene so it kind of both in this scene and in the scene where Jill thinks that it's something to do with her mum, the, the next cut goes to uh, an image of, of Laurie, right? So Kevin goes, where is she? And then the next shot is is the GR area, and it is of Laurie. Equally, when we're looking at Jill, and Jill's getting upset about the fact that it might have been a mum who was injured, the very next scene is Laurie at the hospital. So it would make more sense that, that Kevin was talking about she, as in Laurie. Yeah. So... The GR, including Laurie and Meg, are coming back from the forest. Uh, and Meg says to Laurie, uh, Laurie's getting a little bit, you know, she seems a little bit perturbed. She seems a bit disturbed about what she's just seen, what's happened. And Meg says, are you surprised? We want them to remember something that they want to forget. It was only a matter of time. Uh, she says, I guess I should be scared, but I'm not. Is that weird? Yes, it is weird. <laughs> uh, the, the camera starts getting a bit blurry, a bit slow. Meg starts to smoke and Laurie watches Meg smoke. Meg says, I just hope that she doesn't suffer too much. Obviously talking about Gladys. And then Laurie falls into a full-blown panic attack. She's struggling to breathe. She's unzipping her coat because she's getting too worked up. 
Meg starts fussing over her, trying to make sure that she's okay. So at this point, Sarah introduced to me a piece of detective ass work uh, <laughs> that I find extremely convincing in a very like Poirot move. Yes, um, I think this one, this scene, uh, to be honest, Laurie's response in this entire episode always threw me a little bit. Of course, it would be disturbing to see someone that you'd lived with for a long time be killed in such a way and, and see their body. And of course, we know that she's been having second thoughts about everything. And, you know, she picked up the, the lighter in the previous episode from Jill. And I think the thing that really threw me was a later scene when Laurie is, she, she's in the motel. And she is going to run a bath and she looks in the mirror and she gets this flashback of Gladys's face covered in blood. But it's not her face that Laurie sees, you know, when all the GR go and and, and find the body. It's not her deceased face. It's it's Gladys's face as she is being stoned. It's in the moment. It's it's as she's having the stones thrown at her. It's before she's died. And all the flashbacks that we've seen so far have always been things that the character has personally experienced. So seeing that moment kind of made me think, well, why, you know, why would she be thinking, why would she be having this flashback of a moment that she hadn't experienced unless she had experienced it and she was one of the ones that was stoning Gladys? If it was the guilty remnant that were involved in this, could Laurie be one of the members of the guilty remnant that Patsy drew in? And I think this could also explain some of the other things that happen in the episode right so she she obviously gets really upset right here and the thing that pushes her over the edge is Meg saying I hope she didn't suffer too much which would make sense if you know Laurie was the one that saw her suffer and knew exactly how much she suffered like we all saw that brutal moment where she was being stoned yeah and she said please don't which if we consider that she agreed to this previously, she clearly changed her mind halfway through, yeah. which is yeah. brutal. Yeah, I, I, liked, I like this very much. And, and there, is, there is little evidence for it, for sure. Yeah, but absolutely. the evidence that there is, I think is quite compelling, especially the, the fact that we see Laurie have a flashback of seeing Gladys being killed which I do I did find odd and I Mm -hmm. don't think that the show would be this lazy about conveying something else you know because I initially thought it was about oh Laurie is afraid that this is going to happen to her yeah but I don't (laughs) think the show would be as lazy as to use whatever piece of footage they have available that the character may not have witnessed that scene, but they're just going to throw it in there for the sake of communicating something. So I do think that piece of evidence is really convincing. So then, yeah, we have Kevin in the woods and his policemen are around. And we talked about how they are both at the same time, they are both incredibly incompetent and very callous towards what they're doing. My note says, in the woods, Kevin is instructing some idiot policeman not to step on the evidence. They're, <laughs> they're clearly not <laughs> taking enough care, collecting evidence, investigating this. They're treating, you know, the body of Gladys with no respect whatsoever. 
while at the same time people from animal control are putting these dogs these dogs that dean has shot into bags so there is a very clear parallel between uh, collecting the bodies of the dogs and collecting the bodies of the gr making yeah. this connection quite explicit but i also think there's a little bit of a, a, a an allusion to the fact that they also maybe don't really know how to deal with these big crimes in this you know it's setting up this idea of mapleton as a small little town a little bit sleepy town where nothing that bad happens uh, and maybe they just genuinely are not too sure uh, how to set a crime scene up and how to secure the the rocks i'm mainly thinking you're about, the like, perimeter of the crime scene one might say yeah i like that <laughs> i don't know what that little dance was at all it's the dance of recognizing a pattern. I think we also, the bit that we didn't record, we went on at length about all the different potential crossings of perimeters and borders that happen. Did we cut? Did we lose that? I think so. We talked about the GR breaking in the people's houses. We talk about Matt wanting to get into the bank after it was closed, obviously Kevin at the end of this episode wanting to get into the dry cleaners after it's closed and lots of other similar things. And I express the hope that The Leftovers ends up being a socialist critique of private property, <laughs> but I also express the feeling that this is probably not the case, but <laughs> um, I guess we So... Uh, Kevin comes in, walks past this guy walking all over the crime scene uh, and another police officer is questioning Patty and another member of the GR. Uh, he's quite, I don't know, maybe not, maybe aggressive is too strong a word, but he's kind of a little bit frustrated in his questioning. He says, uh, you live with her for every year and you don't have a contact details or next of kin. And Patty writes down on her pad, no family. And the guy goes, oh, I guess she just grew on a tree. Yeah, there's definitely like a lack of empathy. I, I feel like he wouldn't be saying that kind of thing to someone that just lived in the town. Yeah, but they also, I think they also find the GR's approach to identity very baffling. You know, a person has died and their protocol is to notify their emergency contact or whatever but then obviously Gladys has by becoming a member of the GR she has severed all those contacts. We then have this funny interaction between Patty and Kevin. So Kevin uh, goes to her I need you guys off the streets uh, I don't have the resources to protect you and then he's like, I know. And she starts scribbling. She starts writing on a notepad. And he's like, I know. I know you're going to tell me to fuck off, but you just need to do it. And then she turns the pad around and she just goes, of course. And he's like, oh, okay. I like that very much. Like, I like Patty's unpredictable notepad responses. Maybe that could be yeah. a second. Um, <laughs> yeah, she had all sorts of these things where, like, she says, okay. Like, when Laurie's arguing with her in the mm -hmm. first episode, she's like, no, but I want to, okay. She was anticipating yeah. resistance and Patty is not putting up resistance where other people are anticipating that she would. And I think her unpredictability is, is, is one of the most interesting and sinister later on characteristics yeah. 
so then <laughs> there's this interesting bit where someone says oh there is a witness but he needs to go and uh, he has a ballroom dancing lesson yeah. and it's dean the killer the dog killer guy i don't know if that was like a, a little random thing to flesh out the character or, or he clearly made up the weirdest of excuses for why he couldn't be interrogated by the police <laughs> so i think that it might be made up but i also think that maybe this is Dean like trying to fully physically place himself in mapleton yeah because also what happens next they have a bit of a back and forth kevin's like what were you doing mm-hmm. you was doing his thing um you could have been my alibi but you keep blowing me off and then the animal control guy with the mm-hmm. with the dog in the in the bin bag comes by and they nod at each other and Dean says we have an arrangement. So yeah. it appears that Dean has been killing dogs with the you know blessing of the animal control. He's being revealed here to be uh, an integral part of the functioning of the town. And so when we originally were kind of led to believe that Dean is, is pulling Kevin into this dream, like undercurrent, underbelly of what's happening in the town, actually he's just a normal member of society, or at least he's, he's showing himself to be in this episode, leading us to believe that. And it throws Kevin quite a lot, I think, in this episode. Yeah, and somehow Dean is a better citizen than Kevin. He is more... Yeah inserted in the community he has acquired a name he has contacts he's inserted in a network uh, and kevin is less and less so he goes ballroom dancing now kevin's the one that's pushing boundaries and going a little bit beyond what he should be doing they're swapping places yeah this idea of of kevin becoming him and in a sense he is becoming the person that kevin should be a respected citizen member of the community yeah and then there are some more scenes about just the officers being completely callous and not careful about taking Gladys off the tree and Kevin getting getting angry at that so next we see and I really like this scene I have to say this is a such a nice moment between Jill and Kevin and I was very happy about Jill and Kevin in this episode overall Jill is in their chemistry class at school and she is putting her hand on a flame and Amy is challenging her. Oh, is that it? Like, is that all you can do? And she wants to put it on for longer, blah, blah, blah. So Jill is being Jill. And then Kevin turns up and he starts talking to her teacher. And as soon as she sees him, she starts crying and freaking out and she runs out of of the class and she starts saying to him, Tell, tell me what happened to her. She's assumed immediately that something happened to her mom. In a moment of good communication, for once. Um, he's He's come to the school to, to tell her that someone in the Guilty Remnant has been attacked, but it's not her mom. And he's done this because he doesn't want her hearing that a woman in the Guilty Remnant has been attacked and have her think, oh God, what if it is my mom? And not know about it. So... As soon as, as soon as her dad realizes that Jill has automatically just thought, you know, it's my mum that's been hurt, he goes, no, 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 someone has been attacked, but your mum is fine. If we're keeping with the protection motif, and I don't know if 
we've recorded this i think we have that like i think that the the alarm is is my motif of the week because this is all about the extent to which kevin can protect Mm -hmm. anyone from anyone else and he's already mentioned in the previous scene that we discussed with patty he said again i can't protect you if you go out at night which is something he said before Mm -hmm. and now i think he is he is actually managing to protect to he has protected jill from something and then it's also interesting what she says next because she says i shouldn't have cried she wouldn't have cried for me yeah. Which I think goes a long way towards explaining what what is behind Jill's attitude, which we discussed a little bit last time in terms of her feeling like she's not allowed to care or she has to pretend that she doesn't care. And that's that's why this is such a, a sympathetic moment for Jill, because she's revealed her emotions. She's revealed what is behind her annoying teenage attitude. She's, yeah. She is hurt and she is scared. And then as we mentioned earlier, we go from talking about she, which is obviously her mum, uh, Laurie, we go from that conversation to the hospital where Laurie is sat in an ER uh, on a hospital bed. A doctor comes up to her and starts checking up on her, like asking her questions. He uh, listens to her lungs and he says, how many cigs are you smoking? She does not respond (laughs) and he basically explains okay so it was a panic attack i'm going to give you these pills uh, and you can take them if you feel another one coming on but if you need any more you will need a prescription from a psychiatrist and then she gets out of the hospital and patty is waiting for her she's leaning on a car and she laurie gets in the car and then patty starts driving somewhere and Laurie uh, writes on the pad, where are we going? And Patty puts some music on, which I'm thinking now is something that obviously the GR don't normally do. They don't listen to music um, mm. when they're going places. Because I remember now in the, the last scene when they're coming back, Patty turns the music off as a way to like, okay, oh. we're going back to our normal lives now. So next up, we have... Kevin at the police station. So there is some guy, one of his detectives, who I believe is called Vitello, is reading out this protocol outlining what the police department is meant to do when there is a death related to a cult. Um, Mm -hmm. And it turns out that he's defending his decision to get in touch with AFTEC, which is the Bureau of Alcohol, firearms, tobacco, explosives, and cults, which we've, yep. met, we've mentioned before, to relate uh, Gladys's death. So Gladys's death has now essentially been taken away from the hands of Mapleton Police Department, and it's become a federal matter. Kevin is very mad about this. Lucy is there, and interestingly, he, she takes Kevin's side. I did like this about Lucy in this episode. Yeah. He has Kevin's back. <laughs> She's not yeah. constantly fighting with him, which is nice. Maybe feeling sorry for him a little bit. <laughs> Maybe. He, yeah. Like, yeah, she is she is definitely making a show of supporting Kevin here and she's saying to to the detective, you know, you need to do this and this so the chief can undo your fuck up. 
So Kevin says that he wants to impose curfew and Lucy says that's fine but you need to come yeah. and argue for it at a town meeting. And I almost expected when the guy left the room her to say something like oh no he's right go back on her support in some way in private. So actually when she turned to him and she just said do you need anything from me I thought that was a really nice way of supporting him. Because actually so because because it is not entirely clear why it is such a bad thing that this that the Gladys case has been handed over to to mm -hmm. Antec. I wasn't quite sure what the what the implication of that was and why it was it was such a bad thing that 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 detective had done in contacting them. But I I did understand why Kevin is very involved in this and he clearly wants to solve it himself and and he is very adamant yeah. about it. I think it's also maybe hinted at a little bit in the later conversation that they, that Kevin has um, with the guy at Aztec. Kalani is the name of the guy. Okay. So Kevin says, what do you want us to do with the forensics and everything if, if you have the body? And Kalani says, oh, you just hold on to that. You should be hearing from someone at some point. And Kevin's like, okay, when? And he goes, ah, oh, like four to six weeks. Yeah, so I, I guess. The acknowledgement, the frustration isn't just, I think it's partially about control. I think it's partially about Kevin wanting to control the investigation as a whole because it's part of the wider issues of the town. But also maybe because he knows that like once it goes out there, no one's going to actually investigate it and no one's going to really care about it because it becomes one person mm -hmm. in a wider problem in America. So, yeah, and but then Lucy does say to Kevin that in the way that he handled the situation, he shouldn't be influenced by his family's situation, which means, obviously, um, Kevin's investment with Laurie. Okay, so now we go again to Laurie. Third time, actually. Hmm. Oh, interesting. She stood outside a car outside a motel. And there's a family of, of two, uh, a man and a woman and a young girl. Uh, and they're kind of having a bit of back and forth. Uh, and the little kid looks at Laurie and Laurie waves at the kid and the kid waves back at Laurie. And the mum sees this happening and she grabs the, the young child and says, stop staring. And then I think she turns to Laurie and says something like, you too. Yeah, right? you too. She does say that, that, yeah. A reminder for Laurie of like the family that she had, of family life. There's a wide shot then of the motel as Patty comes out and uh, leads Laurie into a motel room, lets her in and writes on her notepad, I'll be right next door, get some sleep. And then we have this shot that we spoke about earlier about Laurie, she goes to run a bath, she looks in the mirror and she sees a flash of Gladys's face covered in blood. And in this well, scene, when she looks in the mirror in the motel, so first of all, I thought obviously that this is, she's experiencing a sort of level of luxury to which she is not used you know she she sleeps in a massive room with lots of other people presumably she's not being able to run a bath and also when she looks into the mirror i very much thought that she hasn't seen her face in the mirror in a long time because they have no mirrors in the gr house and you know so much of the gr is about shedding the connections you have with other people, shedding um, you caring about your external 
itself and which you know lends to why they don't dress up they wear the white clothes and going with the with the she had a part in gladys's stoning interpretation i'm thinking as long as maybe she is able to remain a non-individuated member of a force that does something that is fine but the mirror scene just reminds her that she is an individual she is a subject she has acted in a certain Mm -hmm. way that is on her like it's a moment when she loses that sense of just being part of a bigger entity and she just sees herself as herself so i think it would make sense that at that point she would feel the most guilty so then we have kevin that is calling this guy kalani He's trying to get the case back to explain that the detective has made a mistake. He is also parking outside one of the GR houses with a good six pack of beers and a nice sack dinner. Yeah. And uh, he, it's, it's nighttime, but then the next scene is daytime. He's fallen asleep. He's not done a very good job at protecting them. He's woken up by a guy, by some dogs actually, barking against the window and again there's this association between dogs and the gr the guy who owns the dogs who's walking them he says they're loud but they're harmless which is kind of the reverse of the gr now that i think about it they're quiet but they are harmful oh oh i like that he tries to make some chit chat about the guilty remnants and then Kevin is like, oh, I can't discuss the specifics of the case. And uh, the guy says, don't investigate too hard. Yeah. Which, yeah, which has been the basic feeling that everyone but Kevin has expressed around this case. They really don't yeah. care about who hurt Gladys because they all think that she kind of deserved it and that the GR deserve it. And then he goes on the phone to Dennis. Oh, pick up Jameson and bring him in. I mean, we're assuming that that's going to be Matt. Jameson. So he he gets back home and the alarm again, there's a bit of an encounter with the alarm. It mm-hmm. isn't on. And he kind of tramples all over like the good communication he had with Jill and the nice connection. And he very aggressively shouts, Why isn't the alarm on? And she goes, Well, you didn't text me. I didn't want it to go off in the night when you got home. So again, maybe another another suggestion that like her frustration is his lack of communication with her. And then he goes, Oh, that beats the purpose of it. And it's like, hmm. Yeah, and okay. it's like, yeah, that defeats the purpose of the alarm, but you also defeat your own purpose as a protector of the community that you want to style yourself as. Um <laughs> shade <laughs> but like also he, he's had trouble with the alarm before so for her to go like okay well do I set it not knowing if he's going to come home and set it off by accident so it's breakfast time with the Garveys lovely and time they're having porridge <laughs> oh more breakfast food analysis what do you think of this one <laughs> are, are you are you saying that you've not been thinking about how Patty and Laurie are at a restaurant that has an all-day breakfast? Breakfast is coming back very strongly. All these things that like we joked about, like, oh yeah, breakfast foods and 
technology not working and it just turns out that the entire show is built <laughs> on these two pillars of technology not working and breakfast food <laughs> perhaps um amy says that she heard they heard that the woman who got killed was dragged behind a truck and crucified and jill like in a really pissed off way again she this entrance of kevin coming back home and just immediately like kicking off her has just riled her the wrong way and she goes well he's not going to tell you Hmm. and then he actually says so it's not true and amy goes see like he did tell us that it wasn't true and this really pisses jill off so then jill storms (laughs) off and kevin asks amy is she okay Amy shrugs and says, and she's Jill. Kevin gets a little bit annoyed at this response and says, well, what does that mean? Amy says, well, she doesn't really do okay. And then Kevin says, oh, I can't win. And Amy is like, now you're getting it. This is the scene that people think, oh, Amy is very much the mother in this household. But just because she's the only sensible adult i don't know if this implies anything about a a rapport between her and kevin there's not just something inherent about a mother that would be able to interpret a child's actions more than like a father i think it's to do with her their friendship yeah and actually i resent the implication that the reason why jill is fucked up and the reason why the garvey family is fucked up is because they are missing a mother not because they're just missing a parent or a member of the family but there's just something about the mother figure who would magically heal all of this and i think that's bullshit i don't think that's what's happening i agree absolutely and then again the idea that that amy is like is taking on that mother figure and that's the only reason why she would have any yeah into into jill no she has insight into jill because they're goddamn good friends so yeah after this so we jump back to laurie and she wakes up in the motel room at 2 38 presumably in the afternoon long sleep yeah so she clearly you know she has fully enjoyed the restorative properties of 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 the motel and having a room (laughs) to herself So there are some clothes that Patty has laid there for her. And there's a note to say, meet me in the restaurant, wear this. So she's wearing normal clothes. And she turns up at the restaurant and Patty is also wearing normal clothes. And she turns to her and she speaks and she says, you look nice. And Laurie is very thrown by this. The waitress turns up and she asks Laurie for her order. And she looks absolutely baffled. And Patty is like, we'll, we'll take a second. And then Patty asks Laurie, how long has it been since you last spoke? Seven months. And Laurie holds up her hands, eight months. And she says, you're overdue for a day off, which, yeah, is clearly not something that Laurie has considered as being part of the <laughs> GR situation. Yeah, um, not really quite an option. Yeah, and she, she tries to write on the pad and Patty stops her and she's like, no, 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 it's okay, you can speak. And she tries to, to reassure her. And then the waitress comes back and Patty orders for Laurie because she still can't bring herself to speak. So yeah, it made me think of that thing that we 
said last time about Laurie thinking that following the rules is a very big part of the guilty remnants and she's following all the rules and she's doing everything she's supposed to do. And then it turns out being silent and wearing white, suddenly we can have days off from that. And I also wonder if she thinks it's a test, right? I think that could also be Yeah. Is she being is she being challenged here to, to speak and if she speaks she'll fail this test that's being set up for her. So now we jump back to Kevin, who wakes up again, can't find his shirt again. He's getting increasingly more frustrated with the shirt and also with the Aftec guy. He calls him again. Uh, very angrily says, haven't heard back from you, please call me, it's important. Uh, and while he, he's calling this guy whilst he's in a queue somewhere, as he gets to the front of this queue, we realise he is at a, uh, a laundry. Uh, and he gets to the front of the queue and the uh, person who is working at the laundrette says, oh, Officer Mustard Stain. And he seems like quite a cheerful, fun guy. He's got this little nickname for him. He also has a nickname for someone else later he goes oh it's mr extra starch it's like a it's a fun nice person who seems like a nice person to go and drop off your laundry with but (laughs) kevin does not have time for nicknames or happiness or lightheartedness and he says where are my shirts he says i'm here to collect my shirts and the guy says do you have a ticket and Kevin says no I don't have a ticket and he says he looks on his computer and he says well you picked all your stuff up last week and Kevin says I know I picked them up but I'm missing my shirts can you check and the guy goes sorry no shirts and Kevin gets really angry at this he says like you didn't even look how would you know whether you had no extra shirts or not and the guy's like I looked I looked on the computer Uh, he turns around he talks to this other guy eventually he says to Kevin if they turn up we will call you and then talks to Mr Extra Starch behind him to try and rush Kevin along so as he storms out Nora is in the queue and she goes don't give up like I've heard that they're gonna sell shirts on the black market so kind of joking a little bit of flirting going on cute very cute and I, I have empathy for Kevin, but like, I, I, he just really annoys me this episode. I would give him least valuable. <laughs> yeah, and Nora, he doesn't, he doesn't deserve Nora's nice flirting here. She makes a little joke of, oh, you know what they say, they'll turn up once you stop looking for them, which has kind of wider implications of, mm. of ideas about other missing things, such as bagels and people. Yeah, and you get the sense that Nora has fucking, she's, she's dealt with her shit. So yeah, then he gets to work and Matt is there. So Kevin asks him where he was two nights ago when Gladys was murdered. And Matt it very calmly explains that he had a, like a Bible study session uh, at his house. Some people stayed over. He has plenty of witnesses. There's clearly nothing to worry about he's very cooperative he's very compassionate he does not seem alarmed or hostile in any way and then he asks about Gladys and he asks if she had any family and he very sweetly explains that because Gladys was kind of stalking his church as part of her duties and he says you know she became a familiar face 
because she was outside the church a lot and he wants to see the body because he wants to to pray for her and Kevin is like do you realize that like you're a suspect in this and he says oh yeah obviously once that's been cleared out I'd like to pray for her like he is not concerned in the slightest that this he's going to be blamed for this again Matt's calm is being confronted with Kevin's fussiness and he seemed annoyed at how Matt is confident and serene he's like no you can't see the body (laughs) yeah again beyond you know just Matt being kind of an empathetic human being he's he also was a reverend so like it's not a complete stretch for him to say please can I pray for this woman who is brutally murdered one last point I wanted to make about Matt here is that he's mentioned that like she became a familiar face outside the church which I also I found interesting when thinking about that weird dream he has after he'd been stoned right and then uh, he gets knocked out by the stone and then he gets up in his head and he goes to the church and isn't it Gladys that is stood outside the church this episode seems to have quite a few interesting callbacks to dream moments I'll tell you more. I do think that I have an interpretation for why Laurie is in the weird sex dream with Matt. I don't know if you do, but we'll talk about it later. (laughs) I was hoping that would come up because that was something that I thought about when I was trying to figure out why Laurie reacted the way she did in the final the final scene of this episode. And I was like, could it be do? Could it? Could it to do be do be do? Could it? (laughs) to do with that sex scene in his dream and I'm so excited to hear your your interpretation. I mean it's it's nothing special it's very basic but but I do think it 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 gets us a bit closer to where we need to be with that. Oh okay so he gets interrupted by Dennis who says oh like they're waiting for you which again I think I remember you saying in the first episode that Kevin is always late. And I was like, oh, he's only late because the alarms don't work for him. But no, he is just always forgetting things. And it's probably maybe to do with the fact that, you know, he's like drunk for half of the time that we see him now. (laughs) But yeah, no, he's not very good at remembering his responsibilities and like where he's supposed to be at what time. So he's forgotten about this curfew meeting that he's meant to be going to. So he kind of does his classic, oh, fuck. And then like rushes off. And he goes into this meeting and Lucy is there and then like loads of people from the town are there as well. And Lucy kind of looks at Kevin and is like, apologizes. And <laughs> Lucy again, kind of throws Kevin in it a little bit and goes, oh, Chief Garvey is here to explain exactly how it will go. Uh, he looks a bit thrown. Uh, he says, as you're all aware, this violent hate crime has occurred to a member of the community. Um, it's best if you all stay in your home the curfew will come into places tonight blah 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 blah. and then people aren't happy at this at all they say so we have to change our lives because of them and then dean the dog man stands up and he says well you're not trying to keep us safe us being locked up inside our houses and we didn't do anything wrong how do we even know these people didn't do this to themselves he's he's placing himself as a member of the community this really pisses off Kevin he's like yeah looking at him like what are you doing here you live in my mind and in my dreams you're not like, even <laughs> from here <laughs> you don't yeah, even go like, here uh, yeah <laughs> yeah it's not clear what Dean's motivation here is it kind yeah. of seems like he's turned against Kevin 
partly because Kevin refuses to go and shoot dogs with him and they were buds and now they're, they're not anymore. I, I just wonder whether is he, is he playing with him and trying to make him think that it's all been in his head? Then Kevin's like doubting his own sanity. I think he definitely exists as a character to taunt Kevin. So the mayor steps in and says, well, this is not a public vote. It's for the council to decide. For the record, I fully support Chief Garvey. He, she puts it to the vote. Everyone opposes it. The crowd go wild. And uh, Kevin does not look too pleased. Yeah, it's a complete disaster, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, and it's Kevin, again, attempting to do his protecting and his protecting failing very spectacularly. And in the next scene, he goes to the GR house, again, attempts to do some more protecting. And he, uh, he asks where Patty is. He asks the people who are there to gather everyone from all of the houses because he's going to give them a little speech. So he says that he knows that they're not going to stay off the streets because they don't care. So what he's come up with is he's going to give them whistles so that they can use them to, to signal uh, when danger is near or if they're being attacked and things like that. Yeah, it's like another voice for them to... Yeah, exactly. And he's saying uh, no one understands whatever it is that you believe in, they don't give a shit. And then he's like, but if you keep following people around, buying their homes, breaking into their houses, they will retaliate. And yeah, that, that's the whole that's point. The point. That's the point of what they're doing. <laughs> it's calling back again to this idea of, well, then why did they even care? Why, why did Patty go along with all this? Like, oh, we have to stay inside. If the entire point is for them to retaliate, why that response? Yeah, surely if- that would be a success. And Meg in all of this is there wearing her like blue jumper and smoking and looking pretty cool. And then Kevin goes up to her and... Uh, he asked her, he goes like, do you still talk? She says, yes. And he's asking about Laurie and she says she doesn't know where Laurie is. And then he says, I'm the only person who gives a shit about you people and you won't even tell me where my wife is. And obviously the thing that Meg says is she's not your it's wife not anymore. <laughs> it's almost as if this is the moment where Meg gains her full confidence like obviously over the course of this episode Meg has spent several months still talking still not wearing white and in this episode she finally you know reaches the you know she's she's completed her training or whatever it is she feels ready to move on to the next step and I I feel like this interaction with Kevin is part of it and then we have another moment again where her ears burn because we go from this discussion of Kevin's wife to the wife herself. And it goes back to Laurie. I, I just love this scene. I could guess uh, this person maybe being your MVP. I mean, yeah, I, I'm definitely very tempted. Like I, I wanted to pick Gladys because... I actually did really enjoy what we saw of Gladys in this episode. Mm. But yeah, just I think this is the first moment we hear Patty speak. And 
I don't know, maybe she has a f five minutes of screen time. And yeah. there's just something about the way that you, at first, she seems very normal. You can't figure out what her thing is. And then she becomes increasingly unpredictable and mad. And you kind of see, oh, okay, this is a cult leader. So Patty's finished her food, her breakfast, and she, she asks for a doggy bag as the empty plates get taken away. And the waitress looks at empty plates and goes, well, for what? And she very quite like, patronizingly says, just get me the bag, sweetheart. And so she looks back at Laurie, who obviously hasn't said any words. And Patty says, I brought her here too, just over a year ago. And he's talking about Gladys here. And she said, Gladys sat right where you were sitting. She got word that her son had died over in Yemen. A helicopter had crashed. As you can imagine, she didn't take it very well. She questioned her commitment, got distracted, and she began to feel again. There was lots of moping around the house, and then it started to happen out in the open. She, she has been quite normal and cheerful up to this point, but at this point, she is clearly despising you start she starts showing her anger that i think underlies all of her other emotions that she goes through in the scene but at this point she's she's saying that with with disdain she started yeah. to feel again and then it started to happen out in the open she's clearly despising yeah. this in gladys it's, it's, yeah i absolutely agree I, I put then in capitals because it, it's almost it's like right okay you can have your doubts you're doubting whether you're doing the right thing or you know missing your family you can't have it out in the open like that's just one step too far I suppose it's this insinuation as well that she brought Gladys here because of these things is that why she's brought Laurie here is it the fact that Laurie is having these doubts having these emotions out in the open where people can see them Patty says, I brought her here, I invited her to speak her troubles out loud, gave her every opportunity. She never broke, not one word. So I'm going to tell you what I told her. I understand the pull. I understand your family, your past, that going back to them feels comfortable and easy because the alternative, what we do, is very, very hard. Because there can't be any doubt, Laurie, because doubt is fire and fire is going to burn you up until you are but ash. Yeah, and at this point, she starts to become very emotional. Her voice goes very high. She starts crying. She is. Yeah. She goes from being quite calm to being extremely upset. And yeah. she speaks with the conviction of a mad cult leader here when she says, but there can't be any doubt because doubt is fire. Uh, yeah, it reminded me a bit of Wayne when he was talking uh, in a few episodes back and he was having his own little speech. Definitely had those kind of vibes, I think. Yeah, 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 completely. I thought actually, because we've been talking about how the DR and Wayne's cult are, have been represented as very different in the moment when Patty speaks. I actually thought Wayne, exactly what happens in that first speech that we hear Wayne do in episode one, Patty, in the same way, she's going through an incredible range of emotions. She's being yeah. unpredictable. 
she's talking in a very prophetic and inspired way, but she's also being angry and threatening. It's just, yeah, it reminded me so much of, of, of Wayne. Do you think that she wanted Gladys and Laurie to speak or that she didn't want them to speak? She's saying, oh, I, I invited her to speak her troubles out loud. I gave her every opportunity. But then in the next line, she says that she never broke not one word. What does she say immediately after? She never broke. So I'm going to tell you, just like you, so I'm going to tell you what I told her. And I think maybe she's saying that not speaking the doubts out loud or appearing to be too diligent can be a sign yeah. that you are actually keeping your doubts to yourself and that's yeah. when they become fire and they're going to burn you up if we're thinking that you know we're looking at this theory that maybe laurie was the one that was part of the the group that that killed gladys i think these sentences are quite poignant right like the alternative, what we do, is very, very hard. It would make more sense if the hard thing that they had to do was sacrificing one of their own. Yeah, then she's being quite unhinged. She, like, kisses Laurie's hands and she smiles. It's like very kind of scary mood swings. <laughs> um, and then she says, remember what you told me to do in the last session before everything changed. And I don't think we are meant to understand what this means yeah. at this point, or yeah. have any elements to understand that. It's going to be quite vague and uncertain, I think. Yeah. And then she, the waitress brings about the bag and she writes Neil on it. And she smiles in a very childish way and she laughs and she goes like, can I be excused, please? And Laura's like, yeah, okay. And she's being the adult in the situation. Um, yeah and she takes the bag with her and obviously i think yeah i don't know i guess the interpretation is that she's put her poo in it right yeah she's shit in the bag yeah right like she's shit in the bag that she's gonna give to this guy neil but it's definitely a bit like okay well what what was this session and what did she say about what to do with this session what kind of session is happening where you're being told to go shit in a bag so yeah this this was was quite an interesting way to end the scene so then we have Kevin turn up at Matt's house and he's having his uh, Bible study thing, which seems pretty well attended, I have to say. Yeah. I wonder if people were a bit more empathetic towards him after he lost the church. I also wonder whether maybe, you know, there was a hint in the Matt episode that a lot of people agreed with him, but were a little bit on the DL about wanting to openly say that they agreed with him. So I wonder whether the loss of his church was actually beneficial for him in that he could do these Bible groups like a little bit more undercover. I think that's possible for sure. And then Kevin says, okay, like you want to pray for her. It's fine. It's the closest thing she's going to have to a funeral. And then yeah. Matt gets in the car with Kevin. And then I am sure that you have the quote. They stop at a red light so he tells he tells kevin this little story they just stop and he starts reciting from scripture <laughs> yeah classic man <laughs> so he says jesus said to his disciples compare me to something and say what i am alike and thomas responds teacher my mouth is wholly incapable of saying whom you are like 
And then Jesus says back to Thomas, I'm not your teacher because you have become intoxicated with the bubbling spring I attended. And then he says that Jesus took Thomas to the side and said three sayings to him. Thomas came back to the others in the group and they asked him what he told them. And asked him what Jesus told Thomas. And Thomas says, if I tell you what he told me, you will pick up rocks and stone me and fire will come from the rocks and devour you. First of all, I think what is important is that Kevin kind of laughs and says, what does that mean? And Matt says, it means that it's easier to stay silent than to speak the truth, right? Yeah. And then he says, killing these people is pointless. They don't care because they're already dead. What I want is to bring them back to life. So again, I did think that like Matt's sermon in episode three, the cohesiveness of this wasn't perfect. Like his interpretation of this passage, easier to stay silent than to speak the truth. I didn't think that covered the extent of it. I didn't think that was a, a particularly exhaustive interpretation of it. I don't know what yeah. you thought. Is he talking about his truth? Like his truth that all the ones that departed aren't good? Or is he talking about, because the same could then be said for the, the guilty remnant. I mean, although they're literally staying silent, they're also trying to remind people in, in some way that is the truth. And the guilty remnant are arguing that like it's those that are staying silent about the loss that everyone has experienced. That's the thing that's bad. The passage is very evocative of lots of things that happen in the episode. So the stoning of the rocks, right? But then we also have the imagery of fire. So we've had the last scene uh, with Patty saying that, you know, your guilt will burn you up. And then we have, you know, Gladys at the end, her body is, is incinerated. You know, what I find perplexing is that in the reviews that I was reading, there was one that was going, oh, if you think that Lindelof was being on the nose before, like, you're not going to like this episode. And I can't quite figure out what exactly people are seeing as being on the nose. Because actually, I think that everything that is thrown in there is quite ambiguous, it's quite ambivalent, and it's evocative in a way that doesn't have a specific, oh, this means this, like yeah. a one-way correspondence, but it's actually very polysimous, very multi-meaning. This little gospel thing could be read in multiple ways. Yeah, I don't think this is like, oh, it's being spelled out now what the whole episode is about. On the contrary, I think this throws more confusion onto it. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, this has this idea of the teacher, of Jesus refusing this position as a teacher, of Thomas being told something in secret that he doesn't want to repeat, the fire, the rocks. Like, I think it throws more confusion yeah. on the narrative than it, than it clarifies it. We can talk about the lorry thing here because obviously the fire, the mention of the fire made mm -hmm. me think of Matt's dream that left us so confused where there is a fire and then Matt is having sex with Mary and then Mary turns into lorry and they are engulfed by flame and the bed is engulfed by flame. And at the time we were like, mm, maybe hell 
but why is Laurie there? And now I'm thinking the flames of doubt are actually a more productive, a more fruitful way of reading this. And I think that actually this probably has to do with the fact that Matt thinks that he can save Laurie from, from the DR. Yeah. That Laurie is a person who is having doubts. And if Matt's purpose is to bring them back to life, I think he mm-hmm. sees Laurie as not having fully committed to the other thing so he can still bring her back. And Oh, I like that a lot. And in Matt's episode, he did see Laurie outside of the Garvey house. So he would have a very concrete proof of her doubts. For Patty, the fire of doubt is like a bad thing, but then you also have fire as like a cleansing thing, right? The fire of um, baptism of fire. So like that, that idea of like a new start and like burning everything of your past life and coming into the new version of yourself. Matt is seeing the fire as something that is like burning away your past life and your past sins so that you can kind of go through this baptism and move on to you know, coming back to life, as he says it. So, so Kevin is taking Matt to see Gladys's body so he can pray over him. And so they go to the morgue and the guy is looking through the various dead bodies, which is nice. And he says, oh, we actually, we shipped her out to Virginia. We got an email from Agent Colini. Kevin gets very annoyed at this. He picks up his phone and he calls Agent Colini and he's lost at this point. He's like, listen, asshole, how dare you pull my fucking body away from my town, Mapleton? Like, call me back or I'm going to come down there and do you don't know what. And then he hangs up and he goes, fuck. And then he kind of turns around and Matt's just like grinning at him. And he goes, I say fuck too. So now we go back to Patty and Lori and they're in the car. And Patty gets her bag of contents uh, with Neil's name and puts it down on presumably Neil's uh, front porch. She comes back to the car. Uh, there's a song playing. Uh, and I think you said that she turns it off as they yeah, drive she home. she turns it off. So I thought this was like, you know, she's done this thing that's very personal and it's clearly very tied to her past and to mm-hmm. her story before she yeah. became a GR. And then she goes back into the car and she turns the music off. And, and I interpreted that as like back to normal life now. So Kevin gets home. Uh, the alarm is on this time, but he can't do something. He's having trouble turning it off. Uh, so he starts going off and saying like, put your number in now. And then at this time, his phone is also ringing. He looks down and he sees it's this agent that he's been trying to get in contact with. So he gets really annoyed and he's like trying to put the number in. He's getting very flustered. Eventually he puts the number in and it's fine. And it turns it off and he answers the phone in time. And this guy, uh, Agent Kalani, uh, he's like, oh, hey, how's it going? He's very, you know, he, he's quite friendly with Kevin. Kevin's like, oh, I've been calling you. And he goes, oh, I was down in Florida. Like, have you seen everything that's happened? It's a fucking mess. You got yourself lucky. So this is... I think referring to the the scene in the television in the news report earlier in the episode at the start when it's talking about the uh, the shooting that was happening in Florida with the other cults. And Kevin goes, "Oh, so like you didn't get my messages?" And the guy goes, "Oh, like there's just one. Did you leave more?" 
he he's been trying to call him and it's not getting through. Kevin is clearly coming up against some bigger system that is failing in some way. And I think the thing that we mentioned earlier about, oh, you know, yeah, now it takes four to six weeks for the body to be processed. And the fact that the email that was sent to the morgue, Kalani says it's an automated process as soon as yeah, the detective raised it, you know, we it, it just it wasn't me sending out that email and ignoring your messages. It's this more impersonal automatic system. Which again is like one face of this federal agency, which okay, understandable why Kevin didn't want to go through this. But then we get like the flip side of this, which mm. is super sinister. And the guy yeah. says, you know, if you want, we can just eliminate the infestation. We send, you know, three bands of agents and they're, they're going to get you the results that you're looking for. I thought it was interesting as well that he, he goes from saying, yeah, the guy will be there to look at forensics in about like four to six weeks. But if you just want them to be all eliminated, we can get that sorted in a week and there'll be three vans there. I think the point is that what this bureau is doing is they are not investigating these crimes. They're just making the cult stuff disappear. Mm -hmm. And the investigation thing, again, is I think very much a link to the dogs. Yeah, like, and he says it a bit seriously now. He goes like, oh, chief, this this shit spreads if you let it don't worry about your victim she doesn't give a shit worry about your town instead and uh garvey like i don't think he saw this coming he's he's shook for sure he's shook (laughs) (laughs) but perhaps maybe for a second he's considering it yeah because he says and the gr what would happen to them and he says uh, that the guy says what happens is they go away they're not your problem anymore. Just say the word and everything can go back to normal. This bit made me reconsider that that opening scene, um, not opening scene, but the, the opening bit with the news, right? They say, oh, it was the, uh, it was the cult that started shooting on the Bureau. Mm-hmm. Was it? Was it that? Or do we think that maybe the Bureau yeah, dealt with the infestation and then rewrote the narrative so that it would make it sound better for them? Yeah, that's very interesting, especially in terms of what we've been thinking about abuses of power from the police. Kevin, during this conversation, has gone to the fridge and opened a beer. And then we next see him at the supermarket buying a case of beer and and looking a bit stumbly. And the, the, the teenage guy at the counter is like, oh, I can't sell alcohol to people that are in... in and he, he mispronounces inhibrated. Yeah. And Kevin is like, again, kind of abuses his position of authority and show, yeah. shows this guy his badge and just like, no, it's fine. You know, I'm a cop. Essentially, you can't touch me. I can do all sorts of illegal shit. Driving drunk. Yeah, to point this out, he like goes to his car and he clearly has trouble putting the key into the car door to open it, which is probably a sign that you shouldn't be driving right now. I don't know if you noticed this, and I, uh, I wish I could take, uh, I wish I could say this was me that came up with this, but I, I read it on the leftovers wiki that 
there's like penguins in the shop window behind him. No, amazing. Yeah. It's the second time that he's, another time that he's not been able to contain his anger and he lets his anger out because it's the mm-hmm. penguins that he was letting, that he was told that in that therapy session, the penguins are to let your anger out at. That's very nice. Thank you, anonymous wiki <laughs> contributor. Whenever I see someone who is drunk and is having an interaction with a person that they should probably wait for the next day to have, I'm like, oh, "Oh, been through that. And I'm glad that every time I decide not to send that text, not to turn up at that house, you know, but Kevin (laughs) is very much gone off the deep end. He's gone to the GR house in the first episode, which is a terrible idea. And this time he turns up with the dry cleaners or the laundrette or whatever it is. And he is honestly Awful. such a violent and threatening dickhead. Um, yeah, it's also this poor guy who's closing up, he's on the phone. And at first he's just like, we're closed. Uh, Kevin's banging on the door, like, open the door, open the door. He starts literally slamming on the door, open the door right fucking now. And then the guy gets really nervous and quite scared, eventually opens the door and he's like, okay, please, like, what do you want? What do you want? Kevin goes, I want you to look for my shirts and properly look for them. So the guy's like, okay, okay. Like, yep, sure, I'll do it. And he goes and he starts rifling through the laundry that's uh, hung up, just picking out white shirts. These are not, these are not his shirts. Right. Yeah, he's just like, here, here's a white shirt, here's another white shirt, there, we've got them, see, white shirts, here we go. Kevin gets a little bit more subdued, calms down a little bit, pulls out his wallet to pay, and the guy's like, no, 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 it's it's no charge, it's fine, this is this is our mistake, okay, bye. He just robbery, essentially. I think the fact that they are not his shirts is especially interesting. Kevin trying to use the rules as he knows them to restore mm-hmm. an order that cannot be restored so at this point he is forcing and faking an order that is not there his shirts are gone and it doesn't matter if you threaten a guy who works at the dry cleaner with your power as the chief of police and and get him to give you some white shirts these yeah. is, this is not fix things this you know it's not gonna work what the fuck are you doing yeah absolutely and it, it, it's almost like it almost like throws him a little bit when it works as in he gets the shirts and like the guy complies mm-hmm. and gives him the shirts he doesn't know what to do now he has them anyway uh now we go back to the guilty remnant meg is sat in the guilty remnant she's smoking and she seems to be wearing all white patty comes home with laurie and patty she looks a little bit confused i think and meg says i'm ready now patty looks a little bit even more confused and suddenly there's this voiceover um something through a megaphone microphone megaphone we hear someone's voice say testing one two and it's matt and he says he's he stood outside with a bunch of people that we assume is from his uh, Bible group, and they're all stood with candles. And uh, a bunch of people at the Guilty Remnant look outside, and so Matt and his friends are all kind of stood again around this perimeter. And so Matt says 
I didn't know your friend very well. Uh, I tried to give her a blanket once and she said no. I don't understand your faith, but I understand commitment and I respect that. And he continues, he says, no matter what we've suffered, we're all still alive. We still feel pain. We still feel love. This woman was one of you and I know you cannot speak her name. I know you cannot say goodbye, but I ask you to at least let me. And if anyone wants to, I invite you now to come out and join us. Yeah, I, I, I thought the thing is, I think this is a moment where I find Matt a really endearing character. Like, I, yeah. I think the fact that he says, you know, I don't understand your faith, but I understand having faith. I understand commitment. Yeah. So crossing these barriers to celebrate that. But actually, I don't know what happens later kind of makes me question whether Matt is being tolerant here or whether he is steamrolling with his own idea of how things should be. And I think it's probably this ambiguity about Matt that is very interesting. I, I equally just felt like that it was quite a lovely thing that he was trying to do. But then I also think, well, yeah, I mean, if that's not the way that they cope with a loss, then is that intruding on their way of grieving? Yeah, and I think what he said before about wanting to bring them back to life makes a lot of sense in terms of what he's doing. And obviously the next thing that we see is Laurie starts crying and becoming visibly upset. And at that point, this time again, this is the third time I watched this, I thought, oh, fuck, like Laurie is genuinely moved by this. Yeah, um, she's, she's broken. Like she's Yeah, she's, you know, he's, he's got through to her. He is actually saving her. And you're reading that Laurie was involved in Gladys's murder adds a lot of layers to this. Matt starts reading from the Bible. He says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Laurie rushes out. She, she looks quite almost tormented. She looks pained. And then Matt sees Laurie comes out and he looks, he smiles. He's so happy because to his head, in his head, he's like, I've finally gotten through to someone and not just someone, but like Laurie, the person that I see you know, my, my, my very good friends that I see in my sex dreams <laughs> that I see in my fiery sex dreams <laughs> that I was maybe like you say maybe he was hoping to get through to her and oh god it's worked and so he's smiling he's beaming and he's like oh it comes from the Lord this is a sign that everything I'm doing is for a reason and Laurie runs out and he keeps going and she just gets a whistle and just starts blowing it in his face and his face just looks rush like he just looks absolutely devastated yeah I thought that, yeah I thought that this was very interesting again in in terms of the silence sound dynamic that we were talking about at the start of the episode mm -hmm. um and the fact that Laurie is effectively able to she is drowning him out like she just doesn't want to hear this and the whole point of the GR, I guess, and their silence is that they, they are passive. They do not speak back. But Laurie is, in a sense, speaking back as much as she can. One, one other thing I thought as well is because she does look so distraught when she's running to him. Does she really believe that much in what the GR are doing? Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I think she is performing a moment like, oh, I have no doubts. 
could she be trying to protect Matt? She's just seen how bad the GR can go. If 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 we're thinking that she's involved in this whole stoning thing, or at least she knows about it, she's seen what the GR can do. And Matt, who has been involved in certain ways, like the with the church and everything, if she genuinely does care about him, could it also be a bit like, what the fuck are you doing here? Get away, or else you're going to be attacked or hurt. I think that's quite interesting. What yeah. if she is realizing that she is now devoted to the cause, but she wants to save other people from it? So Kevin comes home. He, at this point, successfully deactivates the alarm, which I thought was a very interesting. Mm. I think it says a lot about Kevin resolving the problem that he ostensibly has, but actually the problem that he actually has is a different one. Right, like the bagel. Yeah, Yeah. exactly, like the bagel. So he deactivates the alarm. It means that Jill has set it, and Jill appears at the threshold of his room So he thanks Jill for setting the alarm. So the the whole misunderstanding and issue they were having with the alarm, it has disappeared. So it's so kind of some form of harmony has been restored. And he has a really nice chat with Jill. And he says, your mom and I are are getting a divorce. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, And she says, it's not your fault. And he starts crying um and he says i love you and she says i love you too and then he has a good good fucking cry which is might be the first time we've seen kevin cry yeah i think so i mean my note my main note here is just kevin communicates if if we do think about that that penguin inclusion if we think about the first mention of the penguin in the therapist's office and the idea of the penguin is for people, for kids with anger issues to shout out their frustrations and then afterwards hopefully feel they've shedded those anger issues and they can leave them behind. Is this moment in which he is obviously taking out his anger on this replacement for what is actually the source of his anger, this poor guy who's working at this, this laundry or this laundry place. And he's gotten out his anger. And then once it kind of like dissipated, he was just a bit like, oh, I don't really know what to do now. And all that's left is his sadness and his grief and his loss. Not that it's a socially acceptable or in any way acceptable way to get through your grief or your loss. Do you want to describe the last scene? Yeah, so Gladys is amongst a lot of other bodies that are being moved and shifted around. And then we follow Gladys's body as it's put on a, a conveyor belt that moves her towards a furnace. There's a close-up on her face as she's fed into the furnace and she's incinerated. Well, I've talked about my motif. It's the alarm, the extent to which Kevin can protect or not protect the perimeter of his house, his town, and the people who dwell within. My MVP, because you've suggested that I would choose her and actually I have to, it's Patty. I thought that she was she was my second MVP. However, my MVP is Matt. <laughs> because I don't know, like he's not in many This is scenes. the third week in a row, but No, it's not. I didn't do last week as well, did I? Yeah. 
Um, and also like my, my motif, kind of a simple one, but I just thought that fire was a really interesting motif. And I've already spoken about some of these ideas, but I think for me, the most interesting thing is the way that fire is like meaning different things for different people. What do we think about a rating? I think it's a six. Oh, really? Worse than the second one? Because I was thinking a seven and a half because oh, really? we gave episode two a seven and I think this was just as, you know, advancing the plot, but it had some very solid performances. I think I thought I gave the second one less. Okay, yeah, 7.5 then. Um, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, we will see you in the next episode.